Hello, and thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In. You are joining us for a part of our annual Guestapalooza movie extravaganza super special star-studded cast list of friends and respected peers and colleagues. Uh, it is your 2019 year in review. I am your host, Kayla St. Ange. Joining me as always is my co-host, Tyler Hannon. I'm here. Hello. I'm doing really good at vamping up all of these intros to be so dramatic this year. I'm really <laughs> proud of myself. I really stepped it up. Uh, so those, those Patreon dollars like, are well, really helping. I mean, you amp them up and I just like crash and burn. So <laughs> no. it's a nice... Uh, We're here to talk to you today about a couple of movies. Uh but first, I just want to say we just did the math, and this is actually the year we've had the most guests. So the podcast is growing and expanding, and we're so grateful and thankful to all of you for being here and for listening to us and for giving us another chance after such a long time away. We have had a lot of fun putting together these more specific episodes um, while also keeping with a lot of our usual traditions. An extra special thank you to all of our patrons who pay money to hear this. That is something I will never get used to. It is literally amazing. Um, if you have been thinking about pulling the trigger on that, we have donation tiers as low as $1 per month. I believe there is an option to set up a one-time donation if you'd like to do that. Sure. If not, um, you can message us and we can send you a PayPal and you can do that. Super cool. Every time that we get money, it means that we can put more money back into the podcast, whether it's renting movies or paying for streaming subscriptions or going on trips or anything. It's it's really cool to be able to be afforded those opportunities for something that we love so much. So thank you. Um, hopefully 2020 will be another landmark year for us. We're going to release an episode every month of this year, hopefully, which will be amazing. And maybe the first time since we started doing the podcast that that's happened. And we're excited to have you on this journey with us. So every year we look at the categories and they fall into three. Okay, we don't look at the categories. We look <laughs> at the films that people have selected and they somehow always fall into these three categories. And the three categories are horror, uh, Oscar-y, prestige and just like fun blockbuster-y. So the segment that you are currently listening to is our prestige uh, segment, not to be confused with the Christopher Nolan movie, The Prestige. <laughs> yep, because that's what I thought you were talking you, you about. Might have thought, you might have thought that that's what we were talking about. So just to clarify, we aren't. We have before, but not today. We do have a dead doppelganger in a water tank, though. Mm. I don't know what we're going to do with that. We'll figure that out later. Okay. Um, in the meantime, while I think about that, because that's a whole issue that I got to deal with, Tyler, would you do me a favor and tell me about the movie that you've selected for this segment? I would love to do that. And Kayla, I've even written out my thoughts so that I can uh, say them in a hopefully, I don't know, legible. That's not a word. That's not well, the a, right word. It's a, it's, it's a, an audio medium, so legible maybe not, but mm. <laughs> coherent. Mm. That's a word. You know, <laughs> it would help ever, if I learned what words are Not first. that you're ever incoherent. That's not... Thank you. <laughs> so, I mean, the first movie I picked, uh, and I just... No surprise, and just has to be here somewhere, I think, uh, is Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. It is... Uh, you've probably heard of it. You've probably seen it. It's doing pretty well, which it's is an good. understatement. It's doing great, which is just, like, fantastic for so many reasons, not the least of which is... It's a great movie. Um, it is uh, from 
as I said, director Bong Joon-ho, who also directed uh, Snowpiercer, The Host. This movie is about, uh, basically, the simplest way to put the plot is a poor poor young man uh, takes over a tutoring gig with a rich family from one of his friends. His family and the rich family slowly start to, like, their lives start to intertwine and uh, shenanigans ensue. Along with class commentary and, uh, but what one of the among the many things I love about this movie is that it feels so much like a Bong Joon Ho movie, even though it doesn't have a uh, apocalyptic train circling an ice world or a large monster kidnapping young children. Uh, and that's not only because it you know stars Song Kang Ho, who is incredible, uh, but also because. Like all of his movies, it is just so many things at once, but it never feels incoherent. It is thrilling. It's suspenseful. It is hilarious, but also tragic. And it takes turns that you never expect seeing coming. And this one especially feels like a real, I overuse this metaphor, but just like symphony of all of these things coming together, together, coalescing at the point when a certain someone gets a little sidekick to the midsection, thus kicking off a whole other uh, set of issues in the movie. His ability to just like really wind you up and take you into these places you never expected to see coming is really incredible. He's just a, obviously a very smart and he's like he's very smart, he's very clever, and uh, he's got a real humanity to him and an empathy to him, which is a thing we talk about a lot, but it's because it's among the things we value most in the art that we love. And he always brings that to bear. And this movie, it's part of its success is probably how well-timed it is in that it is specifically about not only wealth disparity in the world, not, not just simply about, not simply about capitalism, but also about, just the people in vastly different classes and how not necessarily by any fault of their own, how the specific like wealth that they have or lack of wealth affects how they approach the world. And in some ways uh, kind of dooms us to like certain, certain failings or certain like, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that leads us to like, an inevitability, I guess. Yeah. This may be what you're trying to say. Yes. <laughs> an, that, an, like, an inevitable conclusion. Right. That yeah. uh, it's just the inevitability of it all and the unfairness of it and the way that otherwise decent people are uh, indicted in this movie, even though they're just like, they have no ideas of what they did wrong. And it, it, I don't know, like it's not, con- I don't know that it is specifically condemning people for their ignorance, but it kind of shows how like we have to really work to understand the world around us in order to like not do harm just by living our lives. Yeah. And I mean, like right now, first of all, this movie rules. I just want to get that out of the way as my official opinion on the movie, but um... I could have just said that. (laughs) Yes. Um, the fact of the matter is that the the reason that this movie is so effective and the reason that it speaks to so many of us, regardless of culture or ethnicity or, Uh, geography is that capitalism is a global crime it is a global uh power that is slowly strangling the life out of all of us and the reality of the world is that rich and poor people exist on completely different planes with completely different experiences 
And there is a myth that you can go from being very poor to being very rich. And maybe that works out for a very small percentage of people. But this movie kind of takes um, the, the longing for that class mobility and puts it on display in a way that you can be sympathetic to the the rich family in this movie, I suppose, if you want to be. I I don't really feel sympathetic. I feel that like um there is like the 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 carelessness with which they move through the world is so um it's interesting to see it played out on screen because it's something that I have experienced working in retail, working for very large companies and coming into contact every day with people who make way more money than me and knowing people in my personal life who have more money than I will probably ever have or or could understand is that there is a security that comes with knowing that you'll be fine. And with this film, you see like the... the the carelessness that is on display when they call everybody to like come and help them throw a birthday party or when they just assume that like they don't have anything going on or when they just make like little comments about like smell or and just like any of these little things that that I have seen happen to me and to others around me and it's just it it is something that we have all in our particular class experienced and to me, it's really interesting that it's doing so well in Hollywood because I think that it, it takes that lack of awareness of your own privilege and of your own wealth and how that divides you from the people around you to like think that this is funny or to think that the, the rich family is sympathetic or that they have been so horribly wronged when in a way they're obviously meant to represent like the entire arm of wealthy capitalism crushing all of us. And I think that... In America in particular, we set up this ideal. We we idolize and we celebrate rich people as as gods and rock stars when they really have not done anything besides have more money than us. And I, seeing that play out here is just, it's just interesting. And to, to see so many celebrities like go so hard to bat for this movie. And it's like, it's not that they can't enjoy it. Obviously they can. It's a good piece of art and anybody can be thrilled or laugh or shock or whatever at this but it really feels like a movie of the people and like for us and it seems to me to say like I see this happening in the world I don't have a solution for it because it's not perfect we all know that if you're born poor you are likely to die poor and that there's a generational aspect of this that you can't escape but it feels powerful to see it acknowledged by a filmmaker and in such a, a, a riotously interesting way where it's funny, it's sad, it's it's mysterious, it's breathtaking. Like there's just all of these different things that go into it. It never feels like too much of one thing. And to first of all have that portrayed on screen – and then to have it be recognized by the very people that it is condemning as an incredibly cool and interesting piece of art says something. And I think that the more that we are able to weave in these subversive kinds of movies, uh, the more maybe we can shift culture through art. Well, I think part of that might be, um, well, you know, the delusion of the rich, which is you know part of the movie too. But also um, a reading of it is that 
I would not say I am sympathetic, like too sympathetic to the rich people. Um, but I think my by reading the movie is that is it is indicting more the system than any individual people in the system, no matter where they fall. It's just the actual structure, like financial structure of how society is set up. Like it, it sets us up to fail morally in like these specific ways. And part of it is showing like, it's not enough to just be nice and do your best and just try to not actively be terrible in many ways. Um, like, because the rich family in this movie, they are ostens- like, ostensibly nice. They try to be polite. Like, they, they think they're being all right. And it's not enough just to exist when you have that vast quantity of wealth. You have to, at the very least, grapple with what that means and address that directly. And it is not okay to just... Like, you... you like. To just take from the environment around you. So we, when we right. talk about the title of the movie, it's like, obviously, it's meant to imply that the Kims are the parasites. But really, if you think about it, who are the parasites but the people who hoard all of the resources for themselves and make sure that no one else has anything because they need to have such an excess. And think they own you because they pay you. Um, like, it's very, like, that is, like, spoken at the end, that no matter how congenial this relationship is, in the end, it still comes down to the park saying to the Kims, we pay you, thus, you must do this. Like, yeah. we own you. Yep. Um, and I think... Like, in a way, like, I think the movie is smarter for that or, like, more like more difficult to make and more insightful in uh, getting to the systematic nature of this and how it's not just a few bad people. But I, I think there is maybe, like, I think no matter what, when you make a movie about class, except for, like, maybe Sorry to Bother You, uh, they're, like, they're, people will find a way to find themselves on the right side because either they're not as bad as those people or mm-hmm. I am not as ignorant of my wealth and station as those people. Yeah. Um nobody turned into a horse in this movie though. So. But also is a really is also just like a really good film. Yeah, movie. there this movie is so like it's fun to watch even the parts that are hard to watch. Like it, the parts of it that are like this amazing con man story and when it turns into a more sinister, like horror tinged movie, it's it's honestly it's everything that I like about a lot of my favorite movies all wrapped up into one thing, which is really special. And I think that only a director as as adept as Bong Joon Ho could do that for a movie that has fewer genre trappings than his you know explicitly horror science fiction movies. This somehow like this still feels like the most hopeless of any of them, and that's even considering like the entirety of Snowpiercer. But the fact that this this kid, like to go full spoilers, like has this dream of I will fix this situation. I will grow up and get a bunch of money like the parks, and I will buy basically like buy the happy ending that I would like to have. And even but we as the viewer know that the entire movie before this told us that is basically impossible, Mm -hmm. and that is somehow the most tragic thing of all that this kid who is. Uh, like saddled like literally with a weight <laughs> uh, that he is carrying around at the end uh, with the impossibility and like yeah the the impossibility and the hopelessness of this structure he can still kind of only survive by telling himself this dream that he will be the one to like 
he, that he will find a way, that yeah. he will pull himself up by the bootstraps. Yep, and to, and to rise out of, of his assigned class, basically. Yes. But yeah, um, if you haven't seen this movie, you absolutely should. Um, it, I There are very few movies that I've seen that I would say you literally cannot miss them. You literally cannot miss this movie. It would be a disservice to you as a film fan and a disservice to you as like a person. <laughs> Tyler, do you have any like final thoughts or... I mean, Song Kang Ho for best supporting. Yeah, what actor. the fuck? <laughs> I guess that's that's my only. Um, the Academy, while recognizing this movie in some ways, uh, very badly failed in other ways, which we talk about in some segments. And um, yeah, so. wrapped up with one movie that the academy recognized several times but still in a way failed kayla would you like to tell us about another movie that the academy nominated in several ways but uh, also still failed yes uh the movie that i have selected for this segment of our podcast is greta gerwig's adaptation of little women they're very small <laughs> they're so small if you are unfamiliar with the story of Little Women, it is only one of the most famous novels of all time, written by one of the most famous female authors of all time, Louisa May Alcott. It is the story of the March sisters throughout their adolescence and then their adulthood as they navigate the world into which they have been born. They are also uh, a type of genteel poverty in uh, during the American Civil War, and they are each characterized by... Um, uh, their differences, I guess, is the best way to explain it. Uh, our heroine is headstrong Joe March, who f- is a writer and wants to be a published writer. Uh, her sister Meg March, who kind of just longs for the uh, ball gown, getting a husband, having children kind of life. Younger sister Amy March, played amazingly by Florence Pugh, who is a, a brat, but in a in a really entertaining way. And then their sister Beth, who is by all accounts a saint, but is unfortunately sickly through most of the movie. Um, this is an all-star cast and honestly an all-star adaptation of a book that is extremely popular, has been adapted many times, but the the thing about Little Women that is interesting is that as a story, it becomes much more interesting when you add in the context of Louisa May Alcott's life. When you read Little Women, it is very much like a kind of a smarmy, like, look at these precious girls and how precious they are and how they are being precious and donating their Christmas dinner. And, oh, that one wants to be a writer and this one's going to be married and this one's kind of a brat, but she'll grow out of it someday. Like, it's very uh, cutesy 
And in a way that you can kind of see the thread of like somebody who wanted to write a strong heroine, but wasn't really 100% allowed to. And so what Greta Gerwig does, and this is what Greta Gerwig is, I think, so amazing as a director and as a writer or even as a performer. She's able to pull out this kind of like warm uh, empathy and understanding of being a young woman in a situation. And so what she does is she takes this story that has been adapted to death and has been, you know, has been given many different interpretations based on Louisa May Alcott, based on uh, 90s feminism, based on all of these different things. And she creates a frame story that shows a lot of respect for the source material that she clearly loves, but also sets us up to be in conversation with the legacy of this of the source material and the legacy of a woman who made smart choices for herself and secured her financial independence and had to compromise on some of her artistic vision to do that. And I think that forcing us to confront that and to see that puts into sharp relief like the decisions that women are being asked to make for their art all the time and even now and into today and when you are sitting in a movie theater on Christmas day with your family and you're expecting this heartwarming thing and you kind of get a little bit of this bite of oh here's Joe and she now has to advocate for herself and can you believe that this man would ever tell her that she has to change her ending or that she must marry off her character um it's a thing that is still happening and it's a thing that happens uh, in movies and novels and all of these things like women are asked to make themselves more palatable they're asked to make themselves smaller and I think that Greta just does such an incredible job of bringing out the warmth of all of these characters and making them into these full-fledged human beings so yes Beth is like the sickly saintly one but we get this uh this feeling of her as a person where she loves music and she is truly so thoughtful and kind and in the book like Amy is classically the most hated of all the March sisters because she's a fucking brat she's ridiculous but like when you see her first as an adult and you understand that she is making her way through the world in the way that is available to her she doesn't have what joe has she's working with what she thinks are her talents and she understands the position that she's in as a woman that it is her economic proposition to choose a good and rich husband so that she can provide for her family into like throughout their whole lives and she takes like a character like Meg who has often been seen as like, oh, she just wants to get married and have babies. But like, that's fine. Like, I I think that she just brings this understanding to each of these girls and makes them understandable and makes them people that we can relate to even now because these archetypes are kind of how we see life for women playing out even now into the new millennia, which is interesting. But yeah, um, I just, I, I love... Greta Gerwig as a writer and as a director, I think that her writing skills are never more clear than as, again, taking some of the most ridiculous, like, if you read some of these lines on paper, like, oh, shall we go and give our Christmas dinner to the poor? Won't that be amazing? Even though we ourselves are poor, like, on paper, it's like, oh, my fucking God, shoot me. And then you hear Saoirse Ronan say it and you're like, okay, I get it. Like, I understand now. Like, it feels real and not so cheesy I guess for lack of a better term but like the way that she chooses to light the movie 
and color the movie with the younger scenes being kind of cast in this golden light with the remembrance of childhood, whereas the adult scenes are kind of the stark reality and harsh daylight and whatnot. She just takes, she makes um, a, a beautiful picture of something that I think a lot of women have fond memories of, but wish that like maybe ended slightly differently or had more detail and by giving us this frame story of joe kind of taking on the role of louisa may alcott and being um like this woman who abdicates for herself with a publisher and writes the book and kind of giving us this like dreamlike ending where it's up to you to decide like was the ending of this part of the book that joe was writing was it uh was it just like a fiction or was it real and does Joe get married? And then like, it gives us this really nice inception where you can sit with it and both things can be true at once. Like you can choose to believe that Joe in the end of the movie also gets married and publishes her book. You can choose to believe that she is simply finishing the tale for her publisher. And both of those things work. And I think that Greta is just such an incredible, uh, she, she's an incredible writer and an incredible director. And the way that she writes women in particular is so comforting to me, like I spent like 90% of this movie stoically crying just because I love women so much. And I just felt like really inspired to go and work on my own writing and to just like, I don't know, be a better person. And I think that when you look at Greta's filmography um, from like, again, I know that Frances has a Noah Baumbach movie, but we all know it's a Greta Gerwig movie to Lady Bird to this, like she is kind of setting herself and her characters up to have this ability to fail because not everything works out 100% the way you wanted it to, but to also allow for there to be beauty in those failures and to, I don't know, to allow for that entirety of experience instead of like, here's the perfect golden picture or here is the like very sad reality of what it would be like to live like this. And yeah, Tyler's a giant trader who hasn't seen this movie. So um hope you liked all of my thoughts on it. <laughs> but um, I would have really liked for Greta to get the best director nom. Uh, she deserved it for Lady Bird. She deserves it now. And it is such a shame that the Academy recognizes that this is in contention for best picture, but like apparently thinks that it made itself. <laughs> Cause <laughs> like no director nom for Greta, whatever. It's fine. Like I, I'm, I know that there are many other directors who will have to wait much longer due to not being like a white woman. And I am fully aware of that. And I know that there are people who probably deserve this honor even more than Greta. But in the context of this particular movie, I love it. And I love her. And I want to see her succeed. And I want her to be honored for the the, the prowess that she is bringing to the craft of filmmaking. Yeah, so that's my 20-minute tangent on Little Women. <laughs> no, that was very well said and beautiful. Um, I will now ungracefully leave to the basement. I just, I'm full yeah. of shame. No. Um, but yeah, so uh, those are our two prestige picks for this year. Um, so many good movies came out this year. This was really a super fun time to be a movie fan, despite the continued... Uh, disappointment of the Oscar nominations for things. So um, we have talked long enough. You are going to hear now from a bunch of our guests, and I hope that you, as always, enjoy this segment. We will catch you on the flip side. (laughs) 
Joining us now is Lee Munson, a writer for Slash Film and Birth Movies Death. Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. And we are very excited uh, to talk about the movie you have selected. Can you tell us what that movie is and why you picked it? No. Oh, sorry. We never prepared for that answer. (laughs) We didn't. I'm very very bad at uh, improv. No yes anding here. Uh, No, uh, the the movie I picked was Knives Out. uh, And I love this movie. It's it's the kind of movie where you can tell that the creative force behind it really appreciates the craft of movie making uh, in the sense that it's it's very steeped in its genre. It, it plays around with that genre and, and twists it. It's, it, it's like an Agatha Christie locked door mystery. And then inside of that is uh, a Hitchcockian thriller that kind of twists the idea of not knowing who the killer is on its head. And then it loops back around to being that Agatha Christie sort of mystery again there at the end where you've got, uh, the suspects in the room and it, the big reveal it's it's an astoundingly constructed film and then the fact that all the character work is aces it's very very funny there's just so much to to gush about this movie and it's not even that it's particularly excelling in any one area it's just the amalgamation of things comes together in such a way that it's a, a work of art uh just supreme competence across the board hard agree uh (laughs) ryan johnson is like quite literally my favorite director um so i have been just basking in the glow of the knives out reception i was less in the glow of the last jedi debacle at first it was a glow and then it was like a sad (laughs) i'll say (laughs) by debacle you don't mean the movie you mean the reception oh no i loved yes yes sorry Mm -hmm. uh the rabid weirdos on the internet yeah, less we say about them, the better. <laughs> exactly. But I, I, I agree very much with your point about the craft of the film and nailing the genre in particular. I think that Ryan Johnson's greatest strength as a writer and a director is that he is such a student to the art of filmmaking and he isn't coy about it. He very much wears that passion on his sleeve. And I think that, that it makes his movies so much more exciting because Anybody can act blasé and cool about the thing that they're putting together, but when somebody really just kind of lets that unbridled enthusiasm show, I think it always, for the most part, makes a better product. And if you look at each of his movies in turn, they're all very much a specific genre exercise. And honestly, having seen this and having seen that he's interested in continuing on with the character, um, I would be totally fine with him just making one of these every couple of years and having Daniel Craig do a different silly accent. Like (laughs) it's, it's just, it's, it's good fun, but it also had a lot of really great emotional beats that I think were appreciated. Absolutely. And everyone realizes that this is kind of a pointed political commentary on immigration politics. Um, but what's really interesting is having heard him talk about this. Uh, I, I saw this at the premiere at, at Fantastic Fest this year, uh, and he did a Q&A afterward. And someone asked him, uh, Ryan Johnson, about what his intent was with building this immigration storyline and stealthily sneaking it into this movie, because it's not in any of the marketing at all. And uh, he, the way he talked about it was that he didn't really set out to make a 
political film. He set out to make a film that's that's reflective of the time we live in. And he compared the way he wrote this to the way that Agatha Christie would write her mysteries to talk about issues of her day. But she wasn't out there like getting out on a soapbox. She was just addressing things that were on people's minds and integrating them into her stories. And that's what he felt like he was doing here. Now, that being said, it's the way that he tackles immigration and uh, wealthy white indifference is very pointed. And you can clearly see his opinions on that in there. But it's interesting to me that he's not setting out to deliver a message. He's telling a story and his perspective permeates that story, which Mm -hmm. I think that's the signal of a good artist. I think I agree. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is too much of a tangent, but it's, it's fun. This is a fun, uh, coincidence in that that was one of the main takeaways in our last full episode Mm -hmm. when you don't like set out to make a movie about a specific subject but successfully reflect the world we live in you can make very incredible art about that specific subject Mm -hmm. and i think that it's it's interesting to me how how well this movie performed at the box office even with that kind of subcurrent running through it just because If you think about it, in my opinion, I don't think that mainstream theater audiences are getting a lot of very like challenging films right now. Um, If you're looking at what's like dominating the box offices. And so to have something like that kind of come out as a surprise hit and then also be something that a lot of people found funny and poignant and true, hopefully means that like as a society, we understand that and that we can see more of that reflected in the art that is served up to us. I guess, Lee, I'm curious from like a technical perspective, what were some of your favorite beats in the movie or some of the the things that really stood out to you aside from the story? Well, the production design is fantastic. Like just seeing the Thromby mansion and all the little knickknacks that they found in there. Uh, apparently, if they ever had wanted to do reshoots, they weren't able to do it because they had rented all of those knives and they weren't ever going to get them back. Oh. Uh, <laughs> But apparently, and I need to watch the movie again and like go through it with a fine tooth comb because apparently there are lots of little Easter eggs amongst all the tchotchkes that are references to Ryan Johnson's other movies. So apparently there's a brick reference somewhere in there. There's a Brothers Bloom reference somewhere in there. If I remember correctly, there's at least a Looper reference in there somewhere. But point being that the production design is amazing. I mean, the the screenplay, no doubt, that's obviously uh, like it's I mean, really, this is a director screenplay performance movie mm-hmm. more than anything. So if if I'd wanted to talk about like technical things, I probably would have asked to talk about The Lighthouse because that's a technical movie oh, that I absolutely yeah. love this movie this year. But this is very much a performance centric movie. So I I really have a greater appreciation for that in this sense. Yeah. I think it's also amazing about this movie is like that they got the cast that they have since mm-hmm. it's so star studded and amazing. <laughs> well, it was apparently put together on like pretty much spur of the moment with who was available uh, because they, they had a very tight window and it was just like, okay, are you, are you good to go? Oh, great. Uh, we've got Lakeith Stanfield, T- Tony Collette, Michael Shannon, all these people just have a gap in their schedule and we'll just crank this out in a couple of weeks. Uh, and, and it's amazing that they got all these people, just everything lined up. So I, I agree. It's an amazing cast. 
you're very hashtag blessed. <laughs> I remember correctly. I think I listened to an interview where he said that, I mean, maybe to no surprise that it all like came together once Daniel Craig agreed that he was like, I guess the domino that helps line mm-hmm. everyone else up. That yeah, that's what I've heard try, too. But- mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess like least- when you're talking about the cast and how like they were lucky to get who they got. And I think like I've, I mean, I've listened to a bunch of podcasts, so like this narrative is not one that I am coming up with. It's been cited in many places, but this seems like definitely a just one step on Anna Darmus's ascension from not getting a ton to do, but looking really cool in Baby Driver to playing a su- like a surprise if based on the marketing at least, like key role in this movie being like the heart of the movie. To mm-hmm. um, I know she's portraying. Marilyn Monroe, very oh, soon. Interesting. Uh, oh, that's that was right. One she was, I was not aware of. But oh, yeah. and uh, no time to die. Yeah, she's playing. Right, she's the Bond girl. Yeah. Yes. So, like mm-hmm. the Marilyn Monroe and No Time to Die, and just it seems like she is maybe on like a uh, very steep ascent. And I'm, yeah, I'm all like, for it. I she's so like, good. I feel like we're about to have a weird like face off, maybe next year or the year after, between her and Florence Pugh <laughs> as like mm-hmm. the it girl. Who's who's film Twitter's favorite? Well, I, that one's uh, not really a contest, I think. But <laughs> yeah, right right now it's Florence Pugh, but I I totally can see Anna Darmus uh, ascending as you as you're saying. She's so damn good in this movie, and this is a testament to the writing. But in another genre exercise of of this, she she would be kind of this racial stereotype of like the of the meek uh, uh, house servant, mm-hmm. right and this, I mean, t- not to use the Ryan Johnson buzzword, but it's subverting that expectation by showing that not only is she a good person who has this really absurd aversion to to badness in the form of not being able to lie, but on top of that, th- that goodness is what a- enables her to thrive throughout the film. Like, she's not a stand-in she's not a sounding board for Daniel Craig's Benoit Blanc to shoot ideas off of. She's someone who propels the plot forward through her goodness, through trying to survive basically. And I mean, I'm kind of talking off the cuff here, but like her goodness allows her to thrive, but she's also kind of trying to not get caught as a murderer for a lot of it. So she's, she's not, She's not this do goody that that she's kind of built around as a character. She's she's notably self-interested, but not at the expense of other people and is trying to be this. She she just feels like a person Mm -hmm. and it's it sucks that this like that has to feel subversive. But I mean, this is kind of this is a genre archetype that's born out of uh, a period of intense misogyny and racism so you kind of work with what you got Mm -hmm. and we're moving that art form forward as we enter more progressive age as it were yeah and she has like a lot of agency throughout the movie as well whereas whereas in a lot of movies she would kind of just be bumbling through and getting lucky like she makes decisions throughout the film that impact the investigation coming back on her or like just yeah where or even when she's backed into a corner, it's still very much her choice to figure out how to handle the situation, how to go about it. And I think that letting her stay true to herself and also 
making the decision to stay true to herself is something that a lot of murder mysteries like would not do. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's great. Well, and that's and that's the interesting thing too, as far as uh, integrating the Hitchcocky elements to it, like the idea that we get through the first act of the film and then we find out who the supposed murderer is and we watch her try to foil the detective's efforts. That's a brilliantly clever twist. Mm -hmm. And and it undermines the idea that you're watching a mystery thriller only for that mystery to, you know, largely remain unsolved with, with some very important particulars that come into play later. But she, she needs to have that agency in order for it to work. And if anyone's bumbling through the film, it's Benoit Blanc who is a very smart and capable character, but also is kind of limited by his own eccentricities, mm-hmm. let's say. And and the fact that Marta is the down-to-earth one is the... Like, that's what enables her to get at the heart of what this big conspiracy is at the end. Another masterful marketing twist, honestly. Because mm-hmm. I, I think that the way that they did the trailers for this was absolutely perfect of like advertising the spirit of the movie, but not giving too much away. And absolutely. it's just, it's really fun to have that kind of dichotomy. The story in many ways is all about Marta, but it's, I hadn't thought of this before, but yet another of like the uh, just incredibly clever ways that this is built is that the story relies on Benoit Blanc being like kind of fumbling and wait, you know, with his, all, all of his ex eccentricities and everything but martha's goodness also comes around into making us realize that benoit blanc is smarter than he's been coming off the whole time Mm -hmm. this thing is so structurally sound that even though we think that benoit blanc is something of a bumbling detective throughout in the end we find out that he is just as smart as you would expect the you know gentleman detective in a whodunit to be despite everything we'd seen before but it feels totally earned and not like they had to fool us necessarily mm-hmm. if that makes sense <laughs> no absolutely i mean based on the marketing you kind of feel like you're getting a a poirot sort of figure and then the the movie pulls the rug out from under you and it's like no this guy's way sillier than than poirot even though poirot is Kind of silly, uh, especially <laughs> when uh, in that, uh, what was it, 2017? Yes. The Murder on the Express. Express. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it, eventually you, you come to realize his competence. I, I'm just repeating what you're saying now. <laughs> he also has so much heart, too. Like, that's the other review mm-hmm. of not only his competence, but that he also has, like, this very, like, strong and moral heart and can recognize the goodness in some... Oh. And he knows sometimes, so... <laughs> Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, and and that's what that's interesting too because another detective would have figured out that that Marta was the killer. I used air quotes, but this is an audio medium. <laughs> and he would have figured out that she was the killer like way beforehand, but he had this this empathy and this intuition about about what her character was like. So he he continued investigating. Uh, to get to the heart of the matter because like she clearly had motive and she there was evidence that clearly pointed to her and like earlier in the film it would have been very easy for any other detective story to have just been like oh this is open and shut and like treated the flashback reveal that we get at the end of the first act as oh this is the conclusion of the story this is the conclusion of the of the locked door mystery it's very interesting but 
it's not content to stay there. The the movie wants to keep going and delves into the intricacies of the Thrombi family and wants to examine what Marta's reaction is to them under pressure. Like she has a good relationship with most of them until as it were, the knives come out and, and they feel that their position is threatened. It's really interesting to see that sort of character dynamic play out in what otherwise could have been a very straightforward and rote mystery. But then again, that wouldn't be a Ryan Johnson movie then. So as much as I'm sure it sounds like we all would like to just keep going on about knives. out (laughs) Definitely. I suppose we should wrap up Lee. Do you have any like final like wraparound thoughts or I guess it doesn't have to be a big summary, but anything last thing that you would like to mention about knives out? Uh, it's a very good movie. Uh, don't be like my mom and underappreciate it. It's one of the best movies of the year. Uh, and just go go see it if you haven't already. It, uh, yeah, amazing. Really- I just I just had this terrible thought of trying to watch this movie with my mom, who's the ultimate like, wait, who's that? Wait, what's happening? Wait, what's going on? Wait, what's going to happen next? Like kind of thing. And I feel like now this is maybe a movie that all moms should just watch alone with themselves and not with other people. So that's uh, my final uh, my thought. Mom, my mom complained to me uh, after she saw it that like the mystery was solved early on. And I'm like, but it but it wasn't. There was there was a lot more later on. There was a whole and- other... My family, yeah, like, once again, coming in clutch. My 15 year old sister saw it with me and uh, like on Thanksgiving and she loved it. And mm-hmm. I was just I was so proud. <laughs> so glad you have a cool family, Tyler. Yeah. Yeah. What's the deal, Tyler? I don't know why what that you, you got to brag about your cool family? I mean, I, it's like half bragging, but half also like, why is my 15 year old sister so much cooler than I ever was? Well, you laid the foundation. We'll we'll call it That's that. True. That is that is very generous. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. uh, where can we find you? Where can we find your writing and your stuff and all of that? Please tell us. I write for a couple places. I write for Slash Film sometimes. I make most of my work is over at Birth Movies Death. I write a monthly column called Queer Underworld, where I look at uh, horror, sci-fi, and fantasy films through a queer lens, applying LGBTQ themes to them uh so i do that monthly and that's kind of the main thing that i do when i'm not doing movie reviews but uh yeah i'm sure that you'll have some links to my stuff in the show notes and people can follow them there yep (laughs) we absolutely will (laughs) lee thank you so much for joining us uh hopefully we'll talk to you again soon in the new year
joining us now is friend of the pod and ultimate guest star, Pat Haynes. Uh, <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Hello, Pat. How are you? I'm good. This is definitely the first Tyler's time dying. that we've done this. <laughs> yep. Tyler is literally dying. <laughs> God damn it, Tyler. Come on. <laughs> All right. So Tyler has recovered from whatever just happened. <laughs> Pat is sitting with us. We have not gone on any tangents whatsoever. I don't even know if he, Tyler's going to cut them, but if he does, there were none. If he doesn't, sorry. <laughs> Pat, please tell us which movie that you have selected as your pick for 2019. Yeah, uh, I selected Ad Astra. Yeah, Brad Astra. Dad Astra. Are we going to yeah. give him a Brad Astra, Dad Astra, Sad Astra? Rad Astra. All of the above. Good yeah. one. All right. So neither Tyler or I have seen this movie. But I am holding a physical copy of it. In Tyler my has a DVD of it in his hands right now. It is um, Blu-ray. So please, uh, the, the, the wheel is yours. Take us on this journey through space with Brad. Yeah. So like, I guess... Uh, picking what movie I wanted to talk about this year was a little bit more difficult than past years, not because of anything having to do with quality or whatever, but I actually feel like it's been a pretty good movie year. But the last few years, I feel like the movie that has been my favorite has been like the movie I think is the best or whatever of the year. And this year, I feel like there are certain arguments for like, I don't know, like Parasite or Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or The Irishman or whatever that are definitely like great movies but that didn't really connect with me as much or i mean still that i like a lot but just not like my favorite of the year and this one was like the way that some people were talking about being wrecked by marriage story at the end of that is basically how i felt for the entirety of ad astra (laughs) and i don't know there's just something about uh the like emotional effect that it kind of had over me that or like connection or whatever that made it by far my like favorite movie of the year, even if there are others that I think are better than it. I would love to touch on a little bit more, like, like what about it made you feel that way? Like, what is it? Cause I, I think that it's super valid to have like a favorite movie. That's not necessarily the best movie. Like there are definitely right. like, especially usually with music, I feel that way. Like this is my favorite album, even though it's not objectively the best album, like that kind of narrative. So I guess like, what was it that was so emotionally affecting for you? Yeah. I, well, I guess I'll try it since you guys haven't seen it. I'll try not to go too much into <laughs> or the spoilers. Worst. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> I guess uh, just mainly, uh, like I've seen a couple of his films in the past and something about James Gray's uh, like, I, I know he co-writes most of his stuff, but something about his writing style uh, just kind of hits me on a, I mean like a movie like lost city of Z, which is like, I guess ostensibly just a kind of adventure movie, like an expo- exploration movie into, you know, like territory that hasn't been discovered yet. Which, I mean, you could have, you could easily see like a, it would be a much worse movie, but like a Michael Bay version of trying to find the lost city of El Dorado that would probably suck, but be fun. (laughs) (laughs) And James Gray just manages to make it like the most, like, even though the cinematography of that movie, like it's beautiful and expansive and all that, it's the most like insular, basically just a father and a son type movie. 
And I feel like while that movie, it's more like the father kind of from the father's perspective and like abandoning the family to go on this like ex noble exploration or whatever. Uh, this is almost like Ad Asher is almost like the same, the other side of the same coin where it's almost like the perspective of the kid that got left behind as an adult. And even though like the apple hasn't fallen that far from the tree and all this other stuff, because he clearly is going off to space, which is about as far from humanity as you can get. <laughs> so uh, again, not to spoil too much, but the themes of like kind of isolation and parental connection. And there, there's one specific scene in particular when Brad Pitt in just to say like, and besides whatever like kind of script or direction stuff I'm talking about, it's if you like a movie star giving like a hell of a performance, it's probably it's a side of Brad Pitt that I feel like we haven't really seen before, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the majority of the movie, it's there are a couple of like there's a decent chunk of Donald Sutherland in it and Ruth Nega is in a little bit of it and a couple of other people pop up, but for the most part, the movie is just Brad. And for someone who kind of has been gone for a lot of the decade or doing different like production and stuff like that for most of the decade to have him kind of like be the focal point of this movie in a way that he wasn't even really for once upon a time in Hollywood uh, was pretty, pretty great. I thought, but uh, getting back to the uh, story stuff, there's one scene in particular um in the middle of the movie where he kind of melts down and it was like, I it's the, like the Spider-Man meme of pointing at each other. Cause I was melting down in the same way in the <laughs> theater watching it. Like it is just the most like kind of gut wrenching stuff that, uh, for something that is basically just a person talking to himself that, uh, that I had seen in a long time. And, I mean, all the other stuff in terms of like craft with the cinematographer did a incredible job. Um, the score was great. And I am kind of admittedly a sucker for kind of space movies. But uh, I feel like a lot of people had this. Maybe the trailer didn't really do it much, uh, much help. But I feel like a lot of people had an in- anticipation that this would be kind of like a space action movie, like something along the lines of like maybe an interstellar or something like that. But it's really like space is just the setting and it's basically just a kind of drama about a guy going through isolation and like purposefully isolating himself mm-hmm. and then kind of learning to regret that even though he, it's going to be like seven years before he sees a person again. <laughs> I'm curious how, have you seen high life? How is it kind of like that sort of like moody atmospheric? kind of space movie i'm planning on seeing it this weekend actually i haven't seen it yet it really I, it feels like the least the least like outer space space movie i've seen even though there are like just like beautiful shots of like mars and saturn and stuff like that that you kind of have to have in any space movie it's a lot of just like brad in a room by himself so the one thing i will say i know a lot of people think of like voiceover as a crutch or whatever and as i guess like you're not supposed to do this in screenwriting or whatever but uh some of the voiceover that he does in the movie is just incredible i thought and it's a lot of just brad sitting in a room 
kind of narrating to himself and then he'll spaz out for like five minutes and yeah i don't know i guess it really is just uh the combo that of like the script the space of it and then just seeing a side of uh one of our like biggest movie stars that i feel like we haven't seen in i guess 30 30 years of knowing brad pitt now it's so nice too to be reminded like when somebody who is as uh ubiquitous as brad pitt who for better or for worse, really can't escape being Brad Pitt. Right. When an actor like that can still disappear into a role and give a performance like that. Yeah. It's really something special and really something to like, ah, yes, this is one of like our great icons. Right. Thing. Yeah. I don't know how. How does it compare? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't know how you guys feel about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I, I think he was pretty great in it, but it does feel like there are definitely shades of Brad Pitt to this character (laughs) and Mm -hmm. there are definitely shades of uh, certain parts of his personal life. And I guess I think I read something that this was the first thing that he, that it was like pretty much fresh after his divorce with Angelina. And there are definitely scenes with uh, Liv Tyler's character that you can kind of sense that. Um, but I would say whereas uh, some parts of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, specifically like the boat scene and stuff like that, are kind of like Brad just being Brad. And there are definitely, I don't know, uh, shades of personal life. But like it's definitely a side of Brad that I feel like we've seen before, even if it is a better version of it. The way that he kind of handled it in Ad Astra, I feel like, not to say that I've seen all of his movies, but I feel like that was a, like actual acting from <laughs> is it kind of like a i mean it's been a while but like is it kind of like a money ball thing like the way you're talking about it, the way other people have talked about it, it reminds me of how people talk about money ball i would say, i would say it's a, a, like a mix of brad and money ball um and then like the end of the the like range of emotion that he shows is probably the closest to like seven okay okay Yeah, I was thinking my question was if it is similar in the like Brad Pitt dealing with father feelings vein as like Tree of Life where he is being the difficult father. Uh, It's more of like being the son that has had to uh, live his life that is now an adult having had to live his life with a difficult father. Gotcha. And basically becoming yeah. a difficult father. <laughs> or I mean, he's not a dad in the movie, I'm but a- uh, essentially the same thing as a difficult father because of that. Mm-hmm. I'm actually so disappointed that I haven't seen this movie yet because the entire time that I was in Oxford, it was like it had it came out in the UK before it came out here, and all of the buses had Ad Astra ads on the side. Right. So everywhere I went, there was just Brad Pitt's giant face on a double decker bus. <laughs> And he so was watching over you. You would feel, kind of you would think that that kind of programming would work, and that I would have immediately gone to see it. But right, I, didn't, right. I failed. I didn't. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, I, I don't really. I, I don't think the marketing, like, I don't think the trailer really did the movie a great service, but uh, it really had a pretty uh, strong effect on me. Um, you know, it, it actually, uh, when I was comparing it to other roles, I would say the close. It's more of a. There are some seven moments, but it's more of a mix of like Moneyball and then Assassination of Jesse James. Uh, if to actually, that's a better comparison probably than seven. That's um, I haven't seen in so long. Brad Pitt's just such a oh, yeah. star. 
Yeah, Brad Pitt just rules. <laughs> he's, he's one of the best. That's that was that's the main takeaway of 2019. I feel. LTRFI like. official stance: Brad Pitt, good. <laughs> <laughs> we do like him. Zero hot takes here. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, Pat, thank you so much for sharing uh, your feelings with us. Yeah. Uh, are there any other 2019 things you want to plug, real quick? Oh man, um, we just—I uh, don't. Huh. We just got done watching her smell and i wouldn't say that i uh loved it as much as some of the hype that i've seen for it but it was really good and elizabeth moss is pretty great in it so uh since we literally just finished it like 10 minutes ago i would say that's probably the thing freshest in my mind amazing and it is streaming on hbo kayla oh is it really yes hell yeah okay that i also really want to see which i bring up because i'm using your hbo account (laughs) you have until february 8th to use that because well so do you i know i'm just letting you know because uh golden company or his dark materials materials. is done now and i'm not paying 15 dollars a month for hbo oh i I, I, hear that's why i was looking through the hbo (laughs) you know what that now you mentioned HBO that I would like to plug his dark materials because that was great. And I would like Ugh. to plug Watchmen uh, if you haven't seen that, because that was yeah. pretty fantastic. So good. I like half watched the first episode of Watchmen and had a very lukewarm reaction to it. But after seeing everybody's like full season reactions to it, think that maybe half watching the first episode is not the best <laughs> way to judge an entire season of a show. Go figure. <laughs> I can admit when I'm wrong. Don't worry, guys. No, <laughs> His I, Dark Materials absolutely rules, though. I, I agree that Watchmen, the first, maybe even like two episodes, kind of two or three, take a little. I, I thought they were good, but they are a little slow. And I would say the. From like the last, yeah, the last four episodes were three or four episodes were like, I haven't seen anything like this on TV, maybe ever. It was, it was pretty great. Tyler, oh, yeah. Tyler, have you watched that? Yeah, it's it's really just even just as like feats of television. Right, right. N- obviously right. not an expert, but like, holy cow. Yeah. Okay. Right, impressive. Right, right. <laughs> High praise. I like it. All right. All right. Pat, thank you so much for joining us for and me. for sharing your Brad Astra feelings. Yeah. Hopefully, we will talk to you again in the new year. Absolutely. And yeah, thanks so much. On the microphone. On the microphone. <laughs> we'll, we'll for sure probably, yeah, probably talk to probably. you. Probably. Well, you know what I, I meant? Yes, I meant as like on an episode. Right. No, yeah. Obviously. All right. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Goodbye. <laughs>
And joining me now is our old friend, Charlie Mangan. Charlie, how's it going? Hi, it's going well. I'm very excited. Thank you, <laughs> thank you for joining us again, this time from much further away. Uh, yeah. last, last year, when you did wildlife, you were across the table, and now you're across the country. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's very, it's, it's so sad. But we're here that we can still talk about movies thanks to the wonders of the internet and various recording devices. And we're here to talk about a movie that we both saw this morning at the same time. I know. That's so crazy. <laughs> now, so what movie did you pick? On Gut Gems. On Gut new, Gems. New Safdie. Yeah, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll talk about the Safties quite a bit, but like, just to start broadly, why did you pick Uncut Gems? You know, it's one of those movies where I, I liked it as soon as I saw it, and then I found myself just nonstop talking about it, and so I realized it was my favorite of the year, just in a sense that was like, oh my god, I could talk about this for days and never shut up about it. <laughs> so. so what are the elements of it that you find yourself talking about the most? Um, I think a big thing is, I mean, it's not really a heist movie, but it has all of the intricacies of a heist movie in the sense that the first time you see it, it's so chaotic. Everybody's talking over each other. So many people are non-actors that you kind of get the feeling that it's really messy. But then when you rewatch it, you realize just like how planned out like every second of that movie is. And it's just like so exciting to go through and peel through it and see how purposeful everything that the Safties did in it was. I got a bit of that heist movie vibe too, because uh, Adam Sandler as this uh, gem store dealer slash sport better just keeps, he always has a scheme to try to make some more money and things go wrong and he has to adjust on the fly. And it like all comes down to uh, like the, I'm not like this part isn't very spoilery, but like it comes down to one big play at right, the end yeah. for the crescendo of the movie and yeah like what he's not stealing money but he's being very illicit with money yeah, that's, I was, I don't, there was a part this time the third time watching it i was like this is how i feel like with someone with adhd this is like how i spend money he's like oh <laughs> he doesn't have Ugh. any of the money but he's like yeah no like this is fine and then at one point he goes oh yeah i was just showing you that i had money so that I could go use that money. <laughs> uh, yeah, I really feel that, especially at a certain point in the movie, he gets some money and he's immediately like, okay, I need, to, I like, I have a great idea for how to use this money, but I right. need to get around some other people to use this money. And I'm not going to think about it. I just got to go, 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 go. Cause I got to get the big money. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. It's crazy in the best way. <laughs> and uh, I, like, I mean, it's the most basic thing to, to say but like man the safety it's exactly what i texted you safties sure do love them some scumbags they love to make yeah. movies about these terrible terrible people they've just totally like encapsulated new york i think it's so interesting like kind of current views of new york like if you went back and looked at like 1970s movies they see new york as like this shining metropolis and the safties are like actually it's pretty gross and everyone here is kind of a piece of shit but we like them like, they're gross and scummy, but also they're, like, good. They're great. <laughs> <laughs> they're, like, charismatic. You want to follow them around. You want to know their stories. Yeah, and, like, right. You know, this is, like, a bad dude. Just objectively a bad dude. And, like, I don't know that I want to see him win, but you know what? I want to see that whole journey. <laughs> yeah, and at the same time, there was a really interesting interview that was from um, 
the Times of Israel, like it was explicitly like an interview about how Jewish this movie is. And they asked him, like, do you think Howard is a righteous man? And they were like, you know, he is. Like for everything that he's done, he still tries to provide for his family. At least like he cares about his kids. Except for that one part in the movie, he cares about his mistress, Julia Fox, who is incredible. And it's just sort of like he's kind of awful, but at the same time, I I wouldn't call him like an evil person just like a messy person <laughs> i mean he i think part of it is like his self-interest is always what's like prime like his primary driver is his own self-interest and also right, yeah. uh, a crippling gambling addiction i think right. fair to say <laughs> so yeah. very unhealthy relationship with uh how he uses money it's crazy to just see him sort of run around and like spend other people's money i think this whole movie technically i don't think he ever spent his own money because in the beginning you find out the amount that he borrowed from arno was like a uh, hundred grand which is how much he bought the jewel for so you kind of figure out that arno lent him the money for the jewel and then everything else is like him getting something and pawning it and getting money <laughs> he never uses his own money once in the whole movie and I mean, he's always kind of in a hole because there's also there are also some other people who come up who he apparently owes money to. So like you get yeah. the vibe that whenever he does, like whenever things are looking up, because there are points where things kind of look up. Um, I get like part of you gets why he, he keeps going because he clearly needs more. But it is also one of those cases where you're like, man, it's a, this is a movie about how like if you were maybe just like a little bit better of a person. And yeah. we're just like a little bit nicer or uh, explored some kind of conflict resolution instead of just being <laughs> constant, like a constant scammer. Had any impulse control too. <laughs> right. But then it's like, well, he wouldn't be this person and we wouldn't have this movie. Yeah, like, right. Th- that's just that's just who he is. This is a guy who is like constantly, constantly scamming, tr- constantly lying, constantly trying to get one over and just can't believe that other people will not do what he asks. Yeah. Which, oh, although man. it is frustrating, I think a little oh. bit because <laughs> I don't know. I guess I obviously we're meant to sympathize with Howie, but there is that part. I guess mm, I guess I don't want to bring it up because maybe it's. A Are spoiler. we meant to sim- sympathize with him so much? I don't know. Like I, I feel like I mean he's like they humanize. Like, he's right, a fully yeah. realized human. But I don't. I I guess I didn't find myself sympathizing with him that much. Like, there's a moment when his daughter and his wife share a look in the kitchen that really just tells you, like, <laughs> yeah, this dude checks in when he wants credit for checking in. Right. But I I don't I don't I guess it's he's a very difficult character to sympathize with. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know why I sympathize with him so much. I mean, he is the point of view character. And like, yeah, I mean, who else would we sympathize with? The guys who are like being extra violent, trying to extort money from him. Right, exactly. (laughs) I ended up just being like, if you guys, I ended up turning into Howie where I was like, if you guys would just wait a second, he'd get you the money. If you like hadn't done this, then you would have been good. Like, just leave Howie alone. I mean, just never give Howie I, money I in the myself. first place. It's like, if you want yeah. money back, don't give Howie money. You I should know that by now. Yeah, probably. Yeah, there is, I don't know. I guess, it, I think part of why I feel that way is just a really good interview I read where they kind of said Howard, like we come in on Howard in the movie where he's, the quote is, he's lost somewhere between his resentment and admiration of the ruling class. Like he wants to be accepted and prove his worth. 
and that he's like just started to spin out by the time that we found him. Interesting. And yeah, so in my head, I'm just like, well, maybe before, maybe like a few days before this movie started, <laughs> he was like a better dude. Well, you can also but at the see same that time, in how he interacts with Kevin Garnett, especially where like he loves yeah. Kevin Garnett, he wants his appreciation, but also he's like, how dare this guy fuck me like this? Right, exactly. That and arguably he did exploit a bunch of like African Jews in Ethiopia. Oh, <laughs> so. absolutely. Yeah, that forgot is a, about that part. That is a fun little moment of the movie where, I, oh man, uh, but but yeah, it's um, I, I guess I was a little. It wasn't quite what I expected, which is not a bad thing. I guess I would like I kind of went in expecting a kind of nonstop thrill, like maybe not thrill ride, but like a constant crescendo. And it's not like that, right. which is fine because if every movie was just a constant crescendo, we'd all be very tired. Although a lot of people's like complaints about it is that like from all of the really low star reviews I found because they like to look at them, people were like, "This was just so noisy. Like there was too much noise. What was happening?" But I mean, that is so, part like, of it. That's part of the New York of it all, and the fact that he's yeah. like, while I never actually think he's in a decent spot, I do think like it lets up in a bit in a way. Like say, Good Time didn't. Like, right. Good Time no, was just yeah. constant, and this one's actually like. What? Yeah, you have that like Passover scene, like almost right in the middle of the movie. That's this sort of calm. Like Arno is like literally across the table from him, and like nothing's happening because it's almost like it's just like a peacetime of like, hey, I don't. That was like my favorite scene, <laughs> and it's a really nice scene because like it, not just because it gives it a moment to breathe, but yeah, you see these people as you know people in other situations, which is not something that happened in Good Time, right? Yeah. It is almost like it feels a little more traditional as a movie in in that way, which is, I mean, (laughs) which is neither good nor bad. It's just how I feel, I guess. Um, Yeah, I I don't know. I also really loved, I've been thinking about this a lot. The opening scene reminded me so much of like the Exorcist's opening scene. And I felt like there was just a big sort of vibe across the whole movie of like, you know, the Safties love make, they love movies and they love making movies. And there's just so much obvious like inspiration and love for the craft that I think, I mean, has been clear through all their movies, but they've said that like every movie they've made up to this point was so that they could make this movie. And I think you can really feel like all of that, like passion and love going into making this movie just in my opinion, it's, like, almost perfect. <laughs> oh, for sure. And, like, I talk about how, like, I don't find him that sympathetic. But, like, I imagine as the creator of this movie, you kind of have to find – you have to feel for right. the guy, you know? <laughs> They've sat with him for, what, like, since, like, 2012 or something? So they oh, have man. to have <laughs> – what, what is something else that you find, like, kind of um, – unforgettable essential etc about this movie you touched on like how jewish it is which is obviously not something i could speak to but is another like is something that i remember seeing mentioned before i saw it which was probably you i probably saw you yeah (laughs) i can only speak to it to such a certain degree because you know i'm not like ethnically jewish so i don't want to like step over and say i know what i'm talking about entirely but i definitely did get a vibe just like the entire runtime especially there's a scene where he goes to like upon his Nick's ring and the jeweler goes like hey booby is everything okay like are you doing okay and that moment was one of my favorite moments it was so small but like everyone who watched it has been talking about it because it's just this moment of like we're not on opposite teams here like except the only people who have been fighting with Howard really have been 
Gentiles have been Arno and like that crazy dude. And so like he goes to this jeweler and he's like, hey, booby. And it's just this moment of like, hey, like we're kind of we're on the same team. Like in spite of all of this, I do care about you. Like I want to make sure you're okay. And I think that was just a really interesting sort of apparently that was improvised because those people were non-actors. They were like actually people from the Diamond District who were in the movie. And so I don't know. It just felt very real <laughs> yeah that's uh it's not a subtle movie but like there are all like a lot of small moments throughout that just like do a lot of character building just with a single word or nod of the head or interaction and that's right uh, it's just very rich and i greatly enjoy it and i i feel like besides and what adam sandler and the guy who plays arno i think are the only two like and indina menzel but i think everybody else is like a non-actor and the Safdies have always done that. And I just think it's added such a like realism and just like genuine connection to their work. Cause it almost feels like we're just watching these people relate to one another in real time, if that makes sense. And I am uh, a little bit worried about ever getting someone like Arno's thugs coming after me because <laughs> uh, <laughs> those dudes are terrifying. Oh, and you believe that throughout. <laughs> he was, yeah, that was awful. And then at some point you just get the vibe that Arno, like, they never explain the relationship of, like, how Arno knows these people. But there's a few times where they're like, you see Arno's face and he looks like he's just like, oh, my God, what did I get myself into? Who are these That is people? maybe one of my favorite parts. Like, that just very uh, low-key reveal throughout that Arno is also way over, way in way over yeah. his head, just in a different way. And he almost doesn't see that he's in over his head because he's like, I have righteousness on my side. I've been wronged here. Yeah. Oh, my God. Exactly. That's, like, the perfect word to use. And, like, yeah. And he eventually, like, comes to realize nobody cares that he's been wronged here. Everybody in this movie's out for themselves. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, what, a, what a movie. <laughs> so, I guess. I know. It's so good. And I think uh, the fact that we enjoyed it and also just saw it is coming out. Uh, but, like, so what would be, like, a final point or wraparound or whatever you want to do to kind of summarize like uh to finish off here well i guess i would say if this is i feel like this is a lot of people's first safety brothers movie which i would say one go go see heaven knows what and uh good time they're both great but also i think there's almost a warning that needs to be said if you haven't seen a safety brothers movie to just sort of like prepare yourself it is going to be chaotic it's gonna feel like quote-unquote yeah. messy but i think once you're sort of like past that and you just let yourself be sucked into it you'll see just how intricate and like perfectly fine-tuned all of it is yeah and that messiness and that scumminess is part of the appeal <laughs> uh, right everybody loves dirtbag sandler <laughs> god yeah that's the honestly the worst part of this movie is that at one point I thought, you know what? <laughs> Howie's kind of cute. <laughs> I think that's a, the thing the internet has been uh, warring with itself uh, regarding is, yeah. is Adam Sandler hot or not? I It, it does not appeal to me because Lakeith Stanfield's right there and I'm like, hello? Honestly, Lakeith. yeah. You're the smart one. <laughs> well, it also helps that I saw a trailer for the photograph right before it, in, which is basically just Lakeith Stanfield and I think it was Issa Rae flirting uh, for two minutes. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I was very charmed myself. 
But thank you for joining uh, us again, Charlie. Yes, thank you for letting me talk about it. We will, of course, talk to you in the new year. Yeah. Uh, where can where can the people, the the movie loving people, find you on the internet? I have my Twitter at never cursed um, with two R's, and I guess uh, I could pull my letterbox now, which is Reservoir Pogs. And um, I'm going to Sundance soon, so I'll be having a lot more to yell about on both those things coming up. <laughs> They can get the hot takes about the movies that they won't be able to see for several months. <laughs> yeah, I'm finally part of the elite. <laughs> <laughs> Unless, of course, Netflix buys it and drops it in like two weeks, which, you know, there are always a couple of those. Right. Yeah. But excellent. Thank you for joining us, Charlie, and we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Here with us now is our good Michigan buddy and Let the Right Films in super guest, Landed a Fever. Hello, Kayla and Tyler. How are you both this fine evening? Fantastic. I love the energy. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. How can you not be higher energetic when talking about the crippling, awful nature of divorce? (laughs) (laughs) Listen. Speaking of awful, Landon, what 2019 movie have you chosen? He's like, oh, it's not Toy Story 4. (laughs) No, um, (laughs) but no, um, yes, today I am here to talk about uh, Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story, um, which is um, my second favorite film of 2019. Uh, It is a truly great piece of film, and I'm really happy to be talking about it, especially seeing how the Twitter discourse is uh, about it in general. So I'm really excited to be part of this. But yeah, uh, Marriage Story, yeah, my second favorite film of 2019 behind Parasite, which is, um, which is a very, which is, which is saying quite a bit because Parasite is, became one of my new favorite movies this year. Um, I think it's really great and brilliant. And just, and even in conversations about Marriage Story, where we're not talking about Parasite at all, I feel the need to bring it up because it's, it's fucking fantastic. But, um, just want to say that despite it not being my favorite movie of the year, um, it is still really, really great. And I'm really excited to be talking about it. Um, uh, just, and uh, just as a little bit of background, um, I am a Bombeck fan going into this film in general. Um, I really love um, The Squid and the Whale. His 2005 film uh, was definitely one of the first like indie films that I ever saw. I did see it like soon after it came out when I was, oh, I would have been 12. So yeah, I saw it around like 12 or 13 in that sort of range. So it was my first taste of indie cinema and I fell in love with it. Um, even if I totally didn't understand all of its nuances and like subtle dark humor and everything, 
Um, but yeah, I love the squid and the whale. Um, I love every performance in it and, um, actor in it, Jeff Daniels, Laura Linney, um, Jesse Eisenberg, Owen Klein, um, Billy Baldwin. I think it's Billy. Yeah. Billy Baldwin. One of the Baldwins. He's great in it. Anna Paquin. Um, but yeah, they're all great. I think that movie is really special. And, um, I bring special note to this because this is also um, the only, I think this is the only other film that would really be considered very autobiographical for Noah Baumbach in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, this is um, the squid and the whale was definitely a film based on um, his parents' divorce and um, how he endured it as a, um, as a preteen. And, um, and this is definitely, and this is um, about his own divorce from um, actress uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, as he has talked about in interviews for the film. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a really um, great film. So um, I know Tyler, I know you've seen it. Um, what about the, what did you think of the film in particular? Just off the, just want to hear your reaction to it. I was really impressed. That was really good. Um, I guess my big takeaway is, as is often the case with like um, the narratives around movies, tend to like. I'm not even talking about like Oscars narrative. I mean, just like uh, tend to coalesce around a certain mood in how it makes you feel, mm-hmm. and I think that can be deceiving sometimes. Um, like, just like I guess like this movie is not an easy watch, but it's also not just like everything is terrible for two hours and 15 minutes. There's a lot of humor and humanity and it's still, I, and it still really holds on to the fact that these two people care about each other a lot and like share people, other people in common that they both care about. And even when the process gets to its most awful, uh, like it investigates like these weird in between parts where they're just existing as humans together and, trying to be decent and remembering why they loved each other in the first place. Those were kind of my favorite parts of it. Yeah. As somebody who hasn't seen this, I, I have a thought that I would like to share. And first of all, I think it's absurd that marriage story is being played as like the Oscar villain when Joker is right fucking there. Like, really? This is what you want to waste your energy on complaining about. Like, okay, like fine. Okay. That's fine. It's a choice. But I think uh, Scarlett Johansson is a terrible person. Like, that is true. I agree. 100%. However, by all accounts and purposes, she's amazing in this movie. Adam Driver is amazing in this movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes, and this is, again, probably me getting myself in trouble by (laughs) by voicing such an opinion. But, like, I get that a lot of people – want to write off a story like this as like boring heterosexual drama and just as something like haha straight people are so ridiculous sometimes like bougie white rich people but really. like the the pain of falling out of love with someone and the pain of uncoupling your life from someone that you've been with for three years whether or not however you feel about like the time that you put into that it is a painful and difficult process. And it's whether like it it is something that a huge percentage of the population has experienced or will experience. I, I've experienced it. I ended an engagement and it was fucking hard, even though I wasn't in love with that person anymore. And like I really, really hate this discourse where any movie that is about like this kind of topic is just dismissed as like, haha, straight culture is so terrible because it's like one. Not everybody going through that stuff is straight, first of all. And 
it is, it's still important and it's still a pain that is felt and it's still worthy of exploring. Like it doesn't necessarily deserve to replace other people's stories or be elevated above those stories, but it is still important. And it is just like such a, again, just like to me, such a waste of energy to be trying to find things to laugh at and pick apart when it's about somebody's very real pain and about an experience that was lived and about an experience that tons of people are going to live through. And now they log on to the internet every day to see people like making fun of them for uh, being sad, <laughs> failing at their marriage, like having a hard time. Like, oh my God, I'm so trying sorry. Trying to investigate like what, like and trying to investigate like why it fell apart. Yes. Like, and and like, it's like, which includes a lot of self-examination, which I would generally encourage. More. Yeah. And, and it's fine. If you want to, if you want to hate it and you want to feel of like a certain way about Scarlett Johansson. Those are all totally valid feelings, but like I really feel like with this movie and tons of other movies, we really need to get past this just like this unempathetic way of like viewing people's stories, you know, like and of of mocking people trying to put in the work of self-examination. Like maybe Noah Baumbach isn't doing that perfectly i would assume that nobody could especially not like a a, a white man but like he's trying yeah. and that is and, something and, you know so and, and here's my yeah. big issue with the discourse surrounding this film here it's not that i don't um that i don't that i think that this film is more valuable than um than again i don't think it, this story is more valuable because it's straight and because because it's um how do I put that? I'm trying to say, like, I don't, I don't think this film is more valuable than, than a, like a queer experience or something like that. But here's my issue. When a majority of people are on Twitter t- looking at a two minute clip, not even a two minute clip, the ending of an eight minute clip that has been condensed to only take the last two minutes of a clip and, and judge it as this own, the, judge the climax of a two and a two hour, 15 minute film on its own and like I, I just think it's really stupid that people sh- that someone shared the scene out of context. They screenshotted it from Netflix without, un- and then everyone's commenting on it without understanding the nuance and buildup that led to that. And uh, like, and like I said, it's not even the entire scene. It's the end. It's the last two minutes of an eight minute scene that is incredibly built up. Like if you start from the very beginning, it doesn't start at a 10. It starts at a three and slowly escalates to a 10, which is why that scene works so well. And it's like showing the last two minutes of the first 10 minutes of up. And only seeing like only seeing Ellie die and Carl being sad. Okay, yeah, it's it's sad, but you need to see those first eight minutes in order to understand why they fell in love and why this shit is so sad. Like it's completely out of context yeah. and it drives me up a fucking wall that that is the discourse surrounding this. I just think it's a really lousy, unproductive way to discuss film in general. Well, and I think that it's an issue with the way that we consume media in general now like mm-hmm. we have very short attention spans it's like one meme to the next meme kind of thing and i think that that is really uh not valuable Absolutely. to art criticism and, and obviously like obviously not everybody is approaching this with the the bent of like trying to be an art critic or a film critic or whatever but it's just like i don't know i I, I guess I just I don't really have the energy to be mad online about shit that doesn't matter anymore, mm-hmm. <laughs> and having it be like I don't know this is like to me it seems like a, a well regarded movie with well regarded performances written by a director that I, I like, <laughs> like yeah. I, and again, the Oscars villain 
is clear. Like we just don't have to do this. Like he's right there and he's in clown makeup. Kayla, oh, uh, I was about to make a two popes joke. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> Jonathan Price's first Oscar the nomination. Two popes are fine. They're just they're just in their corner being two popes yeah. and that's okay. <laughs> It's if you and that's it's fair not to like a film like if you and look if you saw all of Marriage Story if you went on Netflix logged in sat down and watched the whole thing and did not like it and thought it was awful or just didn't enjoy it didn't get into it think more films are valuable than others that's totally fine I just want yes. people to give it an entire shot and I just think it's really shitty to watch the climax of a film and then write a snotty little think piece on it on Twitter in less than two hundred eighty characters and see it get 70,000 favorites. It just really, really frustrates me. <laughs> so Landon, why don't we just like try to change the discourse a little bit and let's talk about the things that you loved about this movie because I mean, you watched it, you wanted to talk about it and obviously you don't want to just talk about discourse. So like yeah. what what feelings did this bring up in you? What parts of it did you love? Like the writing, the et cetera, please just go on and take it over. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, no. And, um, that honestly, like I planned for us, the, I planned for the discourse discussion to come later in the conversation, but it kind of worked itself into the front. So I was like, ah, screw it. Let's do this now. But, um, yeah, so favorite things about the movie. Um, so the way this film starts out is really beautiful in and of itself. Like it immediately grabs you with these really beautiful pair of opening monologues, um, where Charlie and Nicole, the characters, um, Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson are playing, um, are um, describing to the audience um, through a narr- through a narration um, while um, of the things they love about their about their husband and wife, basically, where um, they're describing all these little um, cute little um, eccentricities and qualities, um, things they um, like about them as as partners, as um, a father and mother, respectively, to their son Henry, um, and, and describing all these little things that often get caught um, that often are not acknowledged in how crazy. Um, not only um, marriage, but relationships can be like too. And um, I love how um, funny these monologues are. And um, I also love um, the juxtaposition of of us finding out after the first five minutes of the film that they're actually um, letters that each of them wrote to each other um, as they were um, going to um, um, going to marriage counseling. And I thought that was a really clever way of both um, showing that these uh, <clears throat> that these people are. Um, you think that they're incredibly happy together, but in reality, this, um, despite writing all of this out, they're actually in a really terrible state. That also um, comes into another thread I want to talk about um, is the timeline of this film and the narrative of it. Um, I love how it goes back and forth between when the divorce is wanted initially and when everything is fine, um, is wanted and um, and basically before the divorce and after the after the divorce, basically, like when they're in these horrible litigation processes between their own divorce lawyers and everything. And um, I don't know, I just thought it played a really interesting dynamic because we can really get to see where these characters both came from and where they're at now, which I thought was really beneficial to the film. And uh, I don't know. I think this um, this film works in um, in talking about it as as a means of favorite scenes. And uh, there are a lot of really great scenes to talk about just as a whole. Um, there's this really great um, monologue in um, uh, Nicole um, n- that Nicole Scarlett Johansson's character gives in Laura Dern's office. Who and Laura Dern is on fire in this. She is giving her best performance that I've ever seen from her. Though I would like to watch a little bit more um, from her back catalog. And uh, basically, Nicole is um, having her first meeting for the first time with her um, before she decides to take her um, on as um, her divorce attorney. 
where she gives um, a lot of insight into how everything fell apart in their marriage. Um, but it's done in this very slow manner that you almost kind of realize alongside her for the first time that um, this marriage just unraveled around her. And it, it's really beautiful and you really get sucked in. And especially a lot of that is because of the camera work too. And that is um, one of the big things that I think is very underrated about this film. I think the cinematography and the shot composition is very precise in the way that we, um, how shots are framed. And um, there's a lot of really good uh, commentary, both commentary and ju- and humor um, based on the depth of where characters are framed in the shot and um how they're coming across and uh, how that plays into the dialogue and how they're able to talk and discuss with one another. And that's, that's something really underrated that I really loved about the film. But um, and speaking of humor, there's a lot of really funny moments in this movie too. Uh, the first, the, the biggest laugh I think in the film is this um, almost sitcom sort of shot where um, Nicole's family is kind of running around frantically trying to figure out how to serve Charlie because Nicole has given uh, the, the divorce papers to her sister because legally she can't serve um nicole can't serve charlie the divorce papers someone else has to do it and she gives it to her sister who is this frantic hilarious mess and um i love um julie haggerty in the film too she plays nicole's mother who still has a good friendship with charlie and it makes for this really funny unique sort of dynamic um in the characters that we don't see a lot in films like this and um and like I said, despite it being super um, sitcom-y in a way, like it does um, add levity to the film um, and makes it a lot easier to watch. Um, the Easily the best part of this film is um, this great, any of the mediation scenes where they're um, discussing uh, where, the, where divor- the divorce lawyers are going back and forth. Because Charlie's initial divorce lawyer is um, played by Alan Alda, who is great in this. And then he eventually leaves um, him to go to... Yeah, Ray Liotta is really great um, at playing this shark sort of lawyer, of that um, divorce lawyer that um, is... Her, him and Laura Dern are just both not afraid to just dive headfirst in because they're just both such scummy characters. But at the same time... You're not mad at them because that's their job. That's exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Just at any scene where those those two are duking it out, especially like near the end before that giant fight scene we talked about, um, it's just it's so effortless and funny and really heartbreaking all at once. And it, uh, it's it's honestly one of my favorite scenes of 2019 in general. And uh, um, I just love I just love this thread of these lawyers throughout the film because it just so, it shows how shitty divorce lawyers can be while also being kind of subtle about how like malicious they are at the same time. But at the same time, though, I also really love that this film never takes sides. Um, you never feel like one of the two is getting preferential treatment or focus, um, despite being an autobiographical sort of film about written by the director. And that's a, that's one of the biggest compliments I can pay it for sure. Uh, but yeah, and um, I think it ends super sweetly too. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I think we've gone past spoilers at this point. Um, I don't know. I feel like you shouldn't listen to this yet if you haven't seen it, but um, yeah. <laughs> they should know by now if they've listened to this podcast at all. Exactly, so it's yeah. fine. <laughs> Sorry to anyone who is listening to this because I've shared it. Whoops. The way this film ends is really beautiful because it really ties itself um, back into the opening monologues that I mentioned before, because um, after all of the all of the shit has been flung and everything's been said and everything's starting to settle down, um, Charlie um, gets to read Nicole's letter, um, who in the beginning of the film doesn't get to hear it. We we as the audience get to hear it because it's the narration being um, talked to, um, being told to us. But um, later, um, but Charlie never gets to hear it because she doesn't want to share it initially. But he finds it and reads it with Henry and um, his 
Adam is fantastic in this movie, especially the scene. And it's really, really beautiful and a great way to tie the whole thing together. And, uh, oh yes, the last thing I wanted to mention that I really loved um, is Randy Newman's score. It is really great and in a lot of ways perfect for what this film needs to be. It's very melancholy and nostalgic. Um, it feels like the marriage and um, like like the marriage itself, both in its best and worst stages. And, um, and, and honestly, it ultimately just feels like everything's fleeting in a lot of ways. So um, yeah, those are the big things I wanted to pull out of this. Um, yep, I mentioned the editing and the shot composition. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot to love about this film. And I, I really admire it. And I would arguably say this is Bombeck's best film, um, despite me having a huge soft spot for Squid and the Whale, which I think is really great too. So, But yeah, those are the big takeaways I got out of it for sure. I, I guess my only other comments are that uh, I love Adam Driver, so I am excited yeah. <laughs> to watch this. Just unfortunately, love him so much. <laughs> and uh, I think it's super interesting when a director like Noah Baumbach, who is like kind of known for more of like that mumblecore kind of thing, gets to really flex those uh, those film school chops and get in there and really like technically accomplish something. And the whatever dynamic is going on between him and Greta Gerwig that's giving us such great movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, please keep doing that. I love it. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Landon, thank you so much for joining us. Hopefully we'll talk to you soon in the new year. Are there any things that you wanted to plug before we let you go? Um, before I plug, I just want to say, I don't know if I've told you this in person yet, but thank you so much for your lovely and insightful commentary on happiness. I really loved getting to hear your perspectives <sighs> on that. Yeah, I'm so glad you liked it. Yeah, it was great. Um, Yeah, you two really captured it. And thank you for still being my friend after having shown it to (laughs) you. Of course, always. (laughs) Um, Also, watch Happiness if you're listening to this. Um, Don't read it about it. Yeah. Please. And uh, (laughs) um, yeah, um, as far as plugging stuff goes, um, you can find me on Twitter at IGOTDefeverMan, I-G-O-T-D-E-F-E-V-E-R-M-A-N. Um, I'm on Twitter, tweet daily. I tweet about music a lot, but I've been tweeting about movies way more than I have. And I would love more film Twitter friends. So please follow me. I would love to be your friend. And then I um, I also, um, d- I have a Letterboxd as well. What is my ad on Letterboxd? Let's look this up real quick. Yeah, just letterboxd.com slash Um I, po- I watch movies pretty much every day or every other day. And um, I've made a goal for myself to review every single movie I review in 2020. And I'm sticking to that. So I've watched 11 movies so far this year. And I'm, um, I've, st- I've stuck to that so far. So um, do that. That would be really cool. And also, um, I put out a song earlier. Well, on December 31st, I recorded it back in November, a song that I had been writing for over four years that I felt in a really good place to record it and put it out into the world. And the reception of it has been super positive. And I'm very thankful for people that have given it a listen and said nice things and said they related to it. Um, and um, it's called Solace and you can find it. It's, and it's under my name, Landon to Fever. Um, yep. It's called Solace. It's um, everywhere you stream music. Um, and I mean that literally. So um, please, <laughs> please check it out. I would love to um, have more people hear it. So, um, but yeah. That's it. Amazing. Awesome. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate it.
Joining us now is Raul Alejandro Mendoza, creator of the Nerdcore Podcast Network. Raul, how's it going? It's going well, man. I'm really, really excited to be back with my favorite podcasters in this whole wide world. That is like the night. Wow. You got me off on like uh, the what's the phrase the back of my heels or whatever. I'm just taking it back right away. I don't know what to say. That's too nice. I am yeah. in tears. So I'm just gonna go ahead and just like immediately transition to something else that's going to give us a lot of tears, probably. Raul, uh, what was the 2019 movie you selected to talk to us about today? It is Lulu Wang's The Farewell, and it is a beautiful movie about loss, about culture, about pain and happiness and sadness at the same time but it was a beautiful movie that resonated with me in a way that I didn't think was going to be able to resonate with me last year I came on this show to talk about Roma and I told you how incredible that was to watch it as a as a as a Latino and this time I come to you with this movie and I'm telling you I it was just incredible to watch it as a human as a human because this was a story that, reson- that I think resonates with everybody who's had to deal with the terrible feeling of loss and grieving. And uh, it was incredible what Lulu Wang was able to create, you know. And I thank her, and I thank her so much that I was able to cope with, with uh, some of my losses with her film. Yeah, this movie is, like, I, this movie is a revelation, honestly. I I knew that I was going to love it when I sat down with it, but I don't think I was prepared for how emotional it was going to make me. And to see Aquafina in that kind of role and how she approached this performance Mm -hmm. and this character makes me so, so excited to see what she's going to do. Because like, I know she can be funny, but I think sometimes when actors or actresses are funny, they're able to bring such a depth of like timing and emotion to every other kind of performance and just kind of seeing her embrace that side of herself and really go for it. And to see how seriously she's also taking this award season and how just like, like, I guess grateful is maybe the wrong word, but how just honored she is to be there is just amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredible the versatility of her, and uh, I don't know if you guys are going to agree with me here, but it's a it's a damn shame, you know. Lulu Wang should be nominated, Aquafina should be nominated, and they're not. And uh, this is a this is a very personal story with Lulu because it's uh, you know it's from her life and her experiences, and uh, also Zhao Zhao Zhuzhen was uh, an incredible incredible uh, actress in this film too, playing the Nai Nai. You know she should be nominated too mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, but yeah, what's it called? Uh, Aquafina just absolutely blows me away in this movie, you know, and it really does show the versatility of her. You know, she's not just a comedian. She can pretty much do it all. Too. I think this year really shows that um, the Oscar, like I, I, as a film person, it's impossible not to get excited about the Oscars, even when they disappoint year after year after year there's still just like a little part of me that really wants it to be what I want it to be which is just a celebration of the greatest talent and of the greatest filmmaking and I don't know I saw an article earlier by a woman who writes for billboard that said that this year's Oscars confirmed that men are truly just living in a different reality than us and that is to say old white men and I can't agree more. Like that just is like, I just, there's so many amazing 
movies and this is one of them and I yeah wholeheartedly agree like I can't believe after like all all of the cr- critical acclaim and all of the campaigning for this movie that it's not being recognized the way that it should be yeah I I regret not watching this in the theater so uh Same. my Same. co-host of uh Nerdcore he um he actually watches in the theater and he said dude you need to watch this and I was like bro you know what I just had to go through last March uh, I lost my grandmother uh possibly one of the most important women in my life uh you know I always tell everybody when it especially when it comes to uh, the scripts I write because I'm, I'm a filmmaker I don't know if I've t- ever told you guys that but uh mm-hmm it always comes down to writing very strong uh, women in my films because that's basically what I knew growing up. I had an incredible mother, an incredible uh, grandmother and some very, very, very strong aunts. Uh, uh, you know, my father, God, I love him so much. You know, he's great. You know, it's, you know, he's in my life. I'm not making it seem like he wasn't in my life, but uh, you know, when you really look at the women that, with, that, that raised me, they really resonate in my, uh, in the characters I write. And this was, that was 100% Zhao Zhuzhen. I, I saw my grandmother in her. Just the fact that the minute you get into the house, she says, have you ate? Have you, what's it called? Do you need me to start making you something? That was my grandmother. We, the minute we got home from school, uh, you know, she had the food ready for us. But, you know, if, if what's it called? One day we would stay uh, behind first because we were sick and she would bring us over to the house and she said, okay, what do you want to eat? Like, are you okay? Like, you need me to get something for you? Just, I, I there was a way that I was able to cope with this movie and uh, throughout the whole thing, it just, I, 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 I miss her terribly, but I know that, uh, that this movie helped me cope with that. And it also taught me that, you know, even though this, you know, the movie doesn't end the way we think it's going to end, there's a what's it called a there's still a, a, a what's it called a uh, a lesson to be learned it's we never start we never stop mourning we never stop mourning I, I think it's something that stays with us especially for those of us who have to uh, endure the the pain of loss mm-hmm. and I think that for Lulu I feel like it's kind of more an exercise in preemptively dealing with that loss since her Nai is thankfully, I guess, still alive and still like Mm. has now figured out, I guess, the con because Mm. of the movie coming out. But I think that there's something beautiful about like taking that pain and trying to deal with it in a productive way ahead of the curve Mm. so that other people can experience it and use it to help them through their pain and their loss. And I think that it's like, it's such a, it's one of those movies where it's so entrenched in the the culture of China and of being yeah. Chinese or being Chinese American. And it is an amazing example of how if you just let people tell their stories, it turns out that they're more universal than a, a yeah. large studio would want you to believe because like, I, I'm not like I'm white. I have like, I have a grandma and I like, I felt the beats of this and I really like, it didn't matter that, I mean, like it mattered that it was in China, but it didn't like it didn't it didn't change my experience of it emotionally. And I think that the more of that diversity that we allow into filmmaking and the more that we honor that diversity and other people's stories that we can have Mm -hmm. these resonant moments in film. And it's just like that's what film is meant to be. And again, like to tie it back to, I guess, the awards, it's such a disappointment to also not see that kind of universal experience honored. I don't know. Yeah. Tyler, you watched this, I think, the most recently. Yes, like 
a week ago. Like literally last week. So I guess, I don't Here's know. my shame. What were, <laughs> what were your feelings? Like, how did you, like, how did you approach this? Like, what was your initial reaction? Um, well, approach was more, mostly just like, no, it's a very good movie. And I knew the joke plot. But on my, re- my reaction is just, um, I was kind of stunned by the humanity of it. I mean, you put it in very nice terms about the universality of the story. It's, you have a combination of, the culture clash element and being like, you know, learning about this uh, specific element of another culture that is like so endemic might not be the word, but like, so like built in pervasive, like, like, so like it's such a part of their experience and is so foreign to us, but it's also like such a, I guess to be like crudely blunt about it, like fascinating, but also like this very universal humanity of it where it's like, it is, a doting grandmother that many of us can relate to and like the fear Mm -hmm. of losing that person you care so much about. Um, it's just, it it was just, it was very good. It was like, it was very funny. Um, even though it was dealing with this like heavy subject and anticipation of this like great loss, it is still, um, I mean, kind of reminds me of another A24 movie in Moonlight where it's just so, it just fills me with such just like wonder at the like beauty and tenderness and empathy that humanity can hold and how beautiful our stories can be no matter like how small or individual they are uh, and just what power there is in just finding these ways to relate them and personify them. Mm-hmm. And also how yeah. they're, yeah, just <laughs> the, uh, how joy and sadness can, how they're, how interwoven all these emotions are. I just found it pretty tremendous. Yeah. Um, I was going to say there's a part in this film as well that, you know, there's an aspect of it that really resonates with me. And I don't know how, you know, I don't know how your culture, y'all's culture works. And, uh, you know, I know that mine it's we celebrate uh, life and death very differently you know i will go ahead and give you an, an instance you know my 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 grand when my grandmother passed you know we you know the day after we're you know we're sad but we're like okay we're gonna plan out the memorial we're gonna have ourselves a uh, a, a what's it called we're gonna honor her life but we're also going to celebrate the moments that she's that she was there. You know, we're going to have a you know a cookout. We're going to have drinks. We're going to have everything. It's just in Mexico, it's very different the way that we value life and death. It's 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 very it's it's very beautiful. Uh, and I think that that was really interesting when it comes to the culture aspect because that was something that really I really understood. You know, we when 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 somebody dies, you know, we're we're not we're not sad all the time during the funeral. We're kind of laughing. We're sharing laughs. We're sharing, uh, what's it called? Uh, stories and stuff. And we're, um, we're, we're sharing those parts of those very intimate parts of, uh, of one's life. Also, uh, the whole fact that she basically goes to China and tries to maneuver a, uh, a new, what's it called? Culture that she's not used to, because, you know, it's the same thing I felt, I feel when I, it's a special instance with me when I go to Mexico, though, because where I live, it's a it's a very special place where I'm able to have both uh, the both the American and Mexican culture intertwining together. So when I left my area that I lived in and I came over to like West Texas and stuff, it really weirded me out that not a lot of people on the street say hi to you 
that a lot of people aren't, you know, you know, there's not that camaraderie, that brotherhood type of thing that's over here and at, at back home and at the border. So, it, you know, I really related to Aquafina's character just going to China and feeling like, well, am I really Max, am I really a Chinese? Because this isn't, I don't, you know, I don't partake in all these things and I don't really believe in keeping this lie. Like, you know, I, am I really Chinese? Yeah. I think American culture is so strange because it is such a, a mishmash of other things. I think that a lot of Americans, when dealing with loss and grief, would like to say that they're like, celebrating when they're in mourning, but I, I would say in my experience, it's not really the case. It's more of a really like, I I feel like the defining thing of American culture is that it's very individualistic and that we're all very lonely in a way because we don't have like communities in the way that other countries and other cultures do. And it's, for me, when I watch a movie like this or many other movies that are from other cultures, that's something that like really sticks out to me when I think about it is that like Americans are just so alone and just like dealing yeah. with their stuff on their own and not like reaching out to anybody to help with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that always stands out to me, too. You know, it's like, damn, why are you guys so alone? Like, you know, what's it called? back where I live, like, just, you know, just, you won't even know the person. Like you'll just say, Hey, what's up? How are you doing? And you just have like a 10 minute conversation with them. And you're like, Oh wow. Like who was they They'll ask you like, who was that? Like, I don't know. I just had a conversation. With <laughs> it's just a person. Yeah. It's good. I mean, that is, that is interesting because, well, I guess I'm <laughs> just like, oh, I'm very guilty of that because one of my favorite things is being alone in public and just like <laughs> hearing the people around me not interacting. But like, uh, yeah. I guess bringing my own dad into this, he is like this, he's a very odd particular person, but he's like, uh, like, you know, like an ampervert, a blend of both. But like, if he gets someone one-on-one, even if they're a complete stranger, I remember one time he had like an hour-long conversation with scooters or something in the Walmart parking lot with someone he never had met before and never met again. And that's just something he does sometimes. And like, every, mm-hmm. it is something that people find like, it's like weird and like this magical thing about him. We're just like, I, what? You did what now? It's just my dad. It's just my dad. <laughs> Yeah, oh, man. and I, I don't, it's like this thing that's like kind of beautiful, but at the same time, um, like when you're there and it's happening, it like my inc- my inclination, which I try to like push down, is like, Dad, you're just bothering. Like, why, why are you being so weird? Stop doing that. <laughs> like, no, like I mean, sometimes I'm sure he is bothering the person, but like, usually mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's such a. It's also such a dad thing to do, though. I think that's a very dad thing. I mean, he's been, yeah. He's big dad. He's been a dad, dad for my entire life. <laughs> um, but he's had real dad. He's had real dad energy. Yeah. Well, to tie it back uh, to end, I guess, as a filmmaker, aside from like the script and the story, what are some of the things about this that stood out to you? Because I felt like there were so many like beautiful shots and that the coloring in this movie was really phenomenal. So I'm just curious from a technical aspect, what you, what your thoughts were. Don't even get me started. <laughs> oh my god, the beautiful cinematography and the uh, the coloring. Whoever that was a colorist on this, wow, just did an incredible job. Uh, I the, also the music. Um, I believe the song that plays in there during the credits. That that so that was the nail in the coffin. Okay, <laughs> that was the one that really got me to to, to really cry. Uh, Senza di te by uh, Fredo Viola. 
um, you know, that was a beautiful song. Or what's it called? Um, I believe that's the Italian version of Without You by, mm-hmm. uh, uh, I can't remember his name, but I know Mariah Carey did a really good version of that song. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, no, we gotta we gotta put some respect on Mariah, you know, <laughs> for yeah. sure. Yeah, no, that yeah. that credit song was definitely the moment for me where I was like, should I call my grandma right now? Like, I don't know what to do with all of my feelings. It, it, it made me it made me uh, cry. It almost made me smile, and it also reminded me that uh, made me really what's it called? Uh, and I'm tearing up over here. Um, it made me realize that what's it called? It was a very beautiful moment that I shared with my grandmother on my birthday when uh, was the last time I got to hear her voice and I got to see her uh, before things got really bad. And I, it, uh, that song just, I was like, yeah, you know what? This is what I've been feeling for the past couple of months. And uh, uh, I loved it. I, it was, a, it was a, what's it called? There's that, that final song in the credits. Uh, also, I, I really got to put some props to um whoever was the what's it called uh whoever was picking out the location the, the locations the ones who did the location scouting which probably was lulu um those were some beautiful buildings and just the way that they set up those props with the with the food and the table and just all those set decorations are incredible i mean it it really really transports you into that house and really makes you feel like you're part of the family which but it's it's something I've noticed in a lot of uh, what's it called communities of color. There's a lot of very strong what's it called uh, persistence of family, and I'm glad this movie made me feel that. Yeah, it's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing like your very personal story and your very everything. That's the kind of stuff that we love to talk about on the podcast. So I'm a very I'm a very open book here. You know, I just <laughs> talk about anything. You know almost three years into this whole podcast journey thing and it's like you know what i'm telling you everything you know there's you know there's even things that i'd rather not be put out there about me like you know but you know it somehow gets put out on an episode of like the live show and i'm like oh well damn it the world knows now about this well yeah uh but it's it's yeah it's i'm always down to share especially with you guys like you guys are just wonderful people um and I, I'm glad that I, I, you know, I see you guys as friends. So I, this is this is a conversation I would have with you guys in in, in public. I mean, in, what's it called? Uh, without the without the microphones on. So yeah. it's whatever. You know, it's all good. We love you and we appreciate it. Yeah. Are there any things before we wrap up our segment that you'd like to plug? Oh, definitely. Um, so what's it called? As always, the Nerdcore Podcast Network. You can find the podcast feed at anchor.fm slash the nerdcore. Um, I'm still trying to get uh, y'all on Anchor because I really want you guys on Spotify. <laughs> like, I really want you guys on Spotify, you know. Um, uh, Patreon, if you guys want to go support us on there. Uh, wait, yeah, it's fine if I plug oh, in Patreon. Whatever you want. Get that money. Yeah, yeah. yeah what's it called? Our patrons are the, are the best best part of our of our uh, of our network um what's it called they helped us get uh, a new laptop because i accidentally broke mine so uh, let's not just let's just not talk about that <laughs> on air <laughs> i don't like to remember that but uh, the patrons are incredible and they uh they, they they're really the backbone of our of our network so patreon.com slash the nerd course orps find a bunch of tiers they're great and uh, even a dollar a day helps us a dollar a month helps us out a lot so you know just Put whatever you can. It's all good. Uh, there's our next goal that we're gonna hit is uh, audio movie commentaries at 20 patrons. So we've already what's it called? Uh, hit one of our goals, which is to launch a comic book club uh, podcast. So we're talking about a really cool book this month, and also because of the help with the with the 
with the laptop. Uh, we're going to release a couple of other stuff extra for the for the patrons early, which we're doing a Venom commentary. Oh, God. Uh, but they, they hey, I told them, get me the 100 and I'll do the Venom commentary for you guys. And uh, that's going <laughs> to. Uh, you mean the <laughs> best movie of all time, Venom 2018? <laughs> I, I enjoyed Venom 2018 for reasons. Oh. So man, I gotta say, I never wanted to walk out harder. Um, <laughs> what's it called? Uh, we're we're also uh, our co my co-host Brad. He's also going to be cosplaying Thick Thor uh, soon when he gets back on the live show. So that's gonna be cool. They did that to help us out with the with the the laptop too. Um, also, just started a new show, and I feel like I do that every single time when I come on here. Um, and I'm gonna go ahead and lay out the uh, invitation to both of you. Uh, Please listen to The Cinema Condition, anchor.fm slash The Cinema Condition. Basically, it's a show where my guest comes on the episode with me and they choose one movie. And we deeply analyze every single aspect of the movie, like every inch and corner. We The first episode was uh, Gaspar Noé's uh, Climax. And then we did Makoro, Makoro Shinkai's uh, The Garden of Words. Beautiful movie, Garden of Words. Wow. Uh, but what's it called? We have a couple of other stuff that's coming down the pipeline. You know, we've got Through a Glass Darkly from Ingmar Bergman. We've got the Planet of the Apes trilogy coming soon, too. Uh, 2001 is Space Odyssey and a bunch of other really cool stuff. So I want you both to come on individually, though. Yeah. I'll have uh, what's it Tyler. You guys pick the movie. You tell it to me and we'll do it together. Okay. Sounds and good. That's so funny. I was just about to tell you my pick is Venom 2018. <laughs> He's just messing with you. He's being a jerk. Don't listen to him. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hate crime, sir. That's a hate crime. No, <laughs> oh, man, that's terrible. No, you do that. You do that, Tyler. I'm not coming back next year. <laughs> Tyler, stop scaring away our friends and our guests. No, no, don't worry. I want to do a movie about Parasite. The Parasite Venom, uh, of course. But, uh. Oh, goodness. Also, I'm doing a 75 Films from Asia Challenge this year. Uh, I've got a couple of uh, films from China, Hong Kong, Indonesia, India, uh, the Middle East, South Korea, and Japan. I believe that's it. Uh, yeah. And you guys can go check that out on my letterbox. Uh Raul Alejandro Mendoza, you can find it on that. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Yes. And we'll, of course, yeah, have all these links in the notes. Yes. 30 episodes in the first season. So I want you guys on the first season. So if you guys, I, w- I will literally delay the season finale for, for what's it called out for you guys. Oh, my so goodness. <laughs> I'm so yeah, honored. Yeah. Okay, I will, I will get to work <laughs> <laughs> on this. Right. Again, thank you so much for joining us. This is an amazing segment where it's a pleasure as always. And hopefully we'll talk to you soon in the new year. Thank you. Moon hanging low my window. Shoebox of dreams in under my bed. Follow the